Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, And... uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Grace and peace to you from a history of Christian theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim, and this week Tom, Trevor, and I will continue looking at one of the first great thinkers of the Christian tradition who developed what he called the divine philosophy. The reason ministers still wear robes might be because Justin was said never to have given up his philosopher's robes, even after he converted. We want to thank all of our listeners, as we were recently made aware by Tucker Mail, a friend of Tom's, that we were ranked number 230 among religion podcasts on iTunes. This was the first time we were ranked on iTunes, so thank you very much, and tell your friends uh, to listen to this podcast as well. Justin's second apology was less clearly directed than the previous one we have discussed over the last two weeks. We will be in Justin's uh, thought for three more weeks after this one, so settle in. I, for one, have enjoyed Justin, so I'm glad we will have a little more time with him. In this shorter treatise than the previous one, Justin will continue to defend Christianity against the charges of atheism and against Roman authorities who want to put them to death for merely being called Christians. There is a woman whose story he tells, who is a Christian convert, but her husband continues to be a pagan or non-Christian and sort of takes advantage of his wife's devotion to him. Eventually, she comes to the point where she considers divorcing him, and Justin blesses this action. The husband then gets a centurion to put her to death, and another official who also declares that he's a Christian is brought to the trial. So then the husband has both of them killed. Justin wants to demonstrate that there is no rationale for such a judgment and proceeds to give more reasons why the Christians live as they do. He describes why Christians live virtuous lives, not intemperate lives characterized by adultery, drunkenness, and other vices. This echoes Greek philosophical language about virtue, which Justin knows from his philosophical training. He argues that Christians can rightly believe that virtue and vice will be rewarded and punished as Christians believe in an afterlife. But that is not to say that there isn't reason to be virtue in this life. This leads into his larger worldview that might look very different from contemporary America as it is filled with demons and angels and a very real heaven and hell. Justin compares Socrates and Jesus, who are both condemned and killed for their beliefs, much like the Christians who were declared atheists like Socrates in Rome, though neither actually were. Recognizing that truth can be found anywhere, Justin argues that the word, or logos, who is also Jesus, is found in many different philosophers from antiquity, but especially in Plato. Finally, he concludes that Christianity is more lofty than all human philosophy and worthy of any who consider themselves lover of truths. Please check us out on our blog at ahistoryofchristiantheology.com and on our Facebook page, A History of Christian Theology. Here's this week's podcast on Justin Martyr's Second Apology. The last one, Caleb wanted to bring up the debate about whether or not uh, Justin actually had in mind the emperor and the senate. This, di- this apology seems less likely 
to actually have been addressed to, uh, or to actually have been read to the Senate uh, or to the emperor. It's a, it seems to be broader uh, than that, but he does say addressed to the Roman Senate. Yeah. The truth is, is I don't know how we could know how available the emperor or the Senate was to read letters written to them. I mean, did they go through and read all their mail? I really doubt it. I mean, I, I would imagine it's something like whatever president Obama does. I mean, I really don't think he reads everything that's sent to him or tweeted at him or emailed to him. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I would feel like Romans would be far less concerned to actually make sure to get through the material than a modern day American. Um, but that doesn't mean that he didn't want them to read it. I mean, it, I kind of think of these almost as like the proverbial open letters that people, people write today, you know, and somebody writes an open letter to president Obama and, post it on Facebook yeah. and then everybody in the world can read their thoughts and their arguments and, and all that kind of stuff. That's really what it sounds like. I mean, it's almost like he has, this is like first century social networking, basically. Yeah. That's, that seems to be the case. And when he prays that it gets published, that's what made me think, yeah, he, he wants us to get spread around more than anything. Yeah. 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 He does do that at the end of the letter. He, he basically prays and asks for prayer that this letter would be published and that many would read it. You want to read it? You got it yeah, he says, and we therefore pray you to publish this little book, appending what you think right, that our opinions may be known to others and that these persons may have a fair chalice of being freed from the erroneous notions and ignorance of good. Anyway, this is like a huge run-on sentence, so I'm not going to finish it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but he is asking... Please publish this. Yes. Let's get the word out. But that makes sense because in reality, I, during the time of the Ulpian and the Antonine Emperors, and again, those are from Nerva in 96 up to Marcus Aurelius in 160, who, no, who I think dies in 180, roughly. Those emperors did not involve themselves very much in the workings of Christians. It's really the governors and it's, I mean, it's the local authorities who are basically, according to their own uh, opinions, uh, kind of, uh, you know, persecuting Christians. It, it really varies from local authority to local authority. So in reality, you know, Justin, as he's sending out these letters, it, he wants it to be read by anybody who could, who could influence opinion, whether it be a governor, whether it be a, a, the leader of a municipality, or whether it be just citizens who can assert pressure on the individuals. It might be that he intended for the emperor to read it. I don't know. Um, well, or for the And I think it, we should take note here too of the language. I don't know how much we've discussed this specifically, um, but, you know, written in Greek uh, to a Senate that spoke in Latin um, and had for some time. So, I mean, and actually, interestingly, I guess this would have been before Marcus Aurelius, who would have been, you know, who actually himself wrote uh, in Koine uh, Greek. So, you know, there's some thought that that he, you know, would have been a kind who could have actually read it or would have in, maybe enjoyed reading it. Uh, philosophy having been done primarily in Greek for a time. I mean, you know, Cicero kind of changes that and allows uh, philosophy to be or helps philosophy to be done in Latin. Uh, but it should be mentioned that uh, that, yeah, that this was written in, in Koine Greek. Um, and also the, we pray you to publish this, uh, the pray there, uh, is sort of the antiquated English expression. Like we ask, we beg, we wish, uh, rather than we pray as in dear God, 
please let this be uh, like, dear God, will you please publish this or something? It's, it, you know, so anyway, I, I don't know. Cause I, at first, when I heard you say he prays at the end, I'm thinking like he folds his hand and gets down on his knees and said, God, take this book and let it be published, which is not, not yeah. what the pray means in that sense. Yeah, I guess that's true. One thing I would say about your comment there though, I mean, Koine Greek is the lingua franca of the empire and it is what is almost it's universally spoken in the eastern half but its predominance in the west is certain at least in Italy for sure I mean Paul wrote his letter to the Romans in Koine Greek so that shows that Koine Greek was really commonly spoken in Italy I'm sure when you get to the real west to like uh, France and stuff or Gaul I guess in its own in its day uh, probably nobody spoke uh, Koine Greek but I would think that most Roman citizens, that, and by that I mean, I guess, I shouldn't say Roman citizens, people living in Rome could probably speak Latin and Greek both. By the second century, we do start having, you know, uh, yeah, guides and aids to teaching it. That's one of the, which I use in our class, uh, was the like teaching people uh, the various languages. So yeah, it certainly was still used. I guess I just mean to say it, it it's less popular, uh, less used as far as we can tell. Um, and I think there's something of a, a sort of almost surprise or something that Marcus Aurelius was writing in Koine Greek because Seneca who advised Nero, he's writing in Latin, um, you know, a hundred years earlier. So this is also a hundred years after Paul and a lot can happen in a hundred years, uh, at yeah. least a hundred. Why would after. Paul have written Romans in Greek? Why would he have? Yeah. I'm not disputing that Paul did, or I don't exactly know why he did. I'm just saying over a hundred years, a lot can change. Yeah, I guess that's true. I, I would think, though, that if Greek was really commonly spoken in Paul's day, that over a hundred years, it would just become more so uh, because Rome was just cosmopolitan. It, I, so. But it, it, as the Latin becomes the primary language of Rome, it, I mean, you know, it's it's decreases in its fluency and its usage. Latin uh, well, increases. Yeah, I the, yeah I, the thing, because this is the mental image I have, right, is obviously Latin was the official language of Rome at its founding and through most of its history. As Rome becomes more cosmopolitan and adopts Greek styles, then it's not, of course, Latin never stops becoming the official language of the Western Empire. But as Rome becomes more cosmopolitan, uh, it seems that, that you attain this kind of universal bilingual thing. And by the time you get to Paul, Paul writes Romans to common, to common Roman people in, Latin, or in Greek. And so you see this, I mean, so it seems to me that everybody was just flat out bilingual. And then that would make more sense to me of Marcus Aurelius writing in Greek because, uh, you know, even though he is, I mean, Marcus Aurelius is a Spanish, so he's from the far West. And... Uh, the Roman emperor, but I think he wrote Greek because I think one people just thought of it as the language of the academics, right? It's the academic language. They, he of course values the Greek philosophers. And I, I think just everybody, at least all the way up to Italy could just speak it and everybody East of Italy just spoke it. So that was kind of my, my thought on it. I mean, I don't know how true that is, but that's, so that being the case, it would, you know, I, I think somebody writing to the Senate would make sense to write in Greek or Latin. 
To the Senate, yes. Um, I, I don't dispute that. And as you said, academic, sure. This is why they were all surprised, though, when uh, Hadrian started wearing a beard and was a little too Greek. I mean, the Romans are suspicious uh, when one is too Greek and too foreign. Um, you know, I mean, there's a reason that Virgil, um, in the propaganda uh, appeals of um, uh, Caesar Augustus earlier writes in Latin um, and that, that all, you know, the Latin poets are so popular uh, all in, in Latin. I mean, I, I think there is a, uh, what begins to happen is Greek gets overshadowed by Latin eventually. Um, I'm not saying that there isn't a still reserve an academic use of Greek and even a popular use further East. I'm just saying in Latin, they become, I mean, in Rome, they become pride quite proud of what can be done in Latin. Um, so that, that's, I mean, you know, that's all I'm trying to say. And it's, it, it clearly is a, is a commonly uh, used language uh, and, and, and becomes the primary language to the, you know, by, uh, by fourth century, you know, that's the only thing that Augustine wants to speak, even though he has to learn Greek. Um, well, that's part of him being educated. But that's just Augustine living in the West. I mean, in the West, yes, that's always the case, but it, there wasn't really a shift in that sense. I mean, there, it was always split. I, I don't think of it as Latin becoming the language of the empire. The West was always Latin. When Rome, once Rome created the Western Empire, it was. But the, but the breakdown I've always understood and it is Latin is the official language. Greek is the lingua franca, meaning that's the language that everybody just speaks. Obviously, West of Italy, not so much because people didn't need to learn it over there. So they just didn't. They all spoke Latin. So I don't see it as a progression of they used to all speak Greek, but by the time you get to Augustine, they speak Latin. I think, you know, I think what he's saying is, since Latin was the official language, it was the legal language. Jed's saying, yeah, so the Greek was the academic language, but that was, that shifted. That the academics began to actually write in Latin, and then weirdly yeah. now to this day, Latin's the academic language. Yeah, but I'm saying that shift didn't happen in the East. That remained Greek, right? right. You yeah, have a split. Well, obviously, so it's not really a shift. It's just that the East and the West became divorced. That's yeah. all. And so when the East and the well, West but- become divorced. The East and the West definitely come a divorce, and that's extremely important. All of the, I mean, oddly enough, all of this is extremely important to theology that's done. I mean, the first la- the author that we're going to get who is primarily in Latin is um, Tertullian, um, and so from then on, we'll have you know we'll have a divide. There will be those that do theology in Latin and those that do theology in Greek, and it is exactly as Tom's describing. I'm just saying even the popularity among the academics for the use of the Greek language diminishes um, quickly uh, from this point forward in the West to the point, like I said, to the point where Augustine will almost claim not to know Greek. Yeah. Even yeah, though he studied yeah. it. Yeah. That's fair enough. I, you know, I, the narrative you recounted where I just had some things I took issue with and I, I think I still do mentally, but, but I mean, fair enough point there. I mean, just because you know, I still, I've always been, from everything I've seen, Greek is the lingua franca, not just academic. It's what people spoke. And it seems obvious enough that even in Italy, there was a huge group of people who just spoke that. Um, uh, so that was really the point I was trying to make. Yeah. So, okay. Well, uh, so we, we've got that. I don't <laughs> That's know if that's the thing. right word, but. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the text. Yeah, and I'm sure, by the way, there are tons of people out there who are super 
interested in that particular digression. They really care about whether Latin or Greek was spoken in Italy in the second century. <laughs> that might be, that might be cut worthy. Yeah, all right. Yeah, we can we, we can cut it. I'll I'll make it sound like I win and Tom just acquiesces to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, uh, so we we move on to the first example of this woman with her intemperate husband. I I found the whole thing kind of interesting only because. Well, I took a sort of a – it's not a point that even Justin mentions directly, uh, but, but Peter does give an injunction that Christians should not, uh, Christian women should not divorce their husbands who do not share their new faith. But eventually uh, – You mean Paul? Well, actually, and, and Peter does too, and First Peter. Okay. I don't remember – I mean, um, where's that at? First Peter 3, 1 Peter 3.1, wives in the same way submit to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, by the behavior of their wives. Yeah, that's a call to submission, but not about divorce, I don't think, right? Well, not, I guess you're right. It's not about divorce, but I mean, clearly, if they're divorcing, they're not submitting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, can, I guess I see that. I mean, it was, I, I still think, I mean, it's a, just a different context. First Corinthians 7 is the one where Paul, though, actually addresses the issue of whether when somebody's married, um, and they're they're together with an unbeliever. You know, he says, so right here in verse 12, and he talks to a brother, but I assume it applies to a woman because women could get divorced in the Roman Empire as evidenced by the whole story Justin's telling. But he says, to the rest I say in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7, I, uh, to the rest I say, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Oh, and here it is. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, there it is. So it is, he does have that. Yeah and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and so forth. So that's interesting, though, because it says if she is, if the other person is willing to live with them. But obviously yes. this guy, as we know, kind of is running off on her. Well, but he wants to stay married. He's running off on her, but he's, he, want, he doesn't want her to be divorced. Or divorced. So mm. I, I don't know what the Justin Right. I mean, yeah. At the same time, of course, Jesus, obviously, in the Gospels, make a provision that if somebody's committing sexual immorality is the quote. Yeah. I mean, he obviously makes a provision for divorce. So I, I don't think that, which, that which to me, I, I don't blame her for yeah. wanting to get a divorce at all. Yeah. I'm just saying that the text in which it talks about a believer and unbeliever together, you know, makes that comment. I, I think, though, that the Peter passage is kind of interesting because it's almost like saying, Hey, you should just try to evangelize them and stay married to them. That's oh, kind of I do see that. Yeah, I mean that's, that's definitely there. That's kind of how it sounds. So that's that's why that is kind of interesting. Because, okay. Because yeah, because it's almost like the the Paul passage obviously is more explicit about it's it. It's explicit about it. Yeah. But it's but it's also kind of just I think reiterating what we just said about what Jesus said about divorce, where you can leave if they're unfaithful. Um, yeah, so I mean, yeah. when he does go on, I didn't even think about that because I don't think you, maybe you did read that second part, Chad, or maybe mentally I was already going on. But when he says, so that a husband might be won by his wife's good deeds and so forth. Yeah. So, um, or maybe won over. I don't know that, I mean, that, you know, to what degree, if that's just talking about an unbelieving husband or if it's also just talking about winning over your husband. Uh, to your side, so to speak. Tom, Tom's right. The first Corinthians seventh pa- pa- passage is more explicit, 
throwing in the Peter passage just adds a fullness to the whole idea that uh, it seems that from the apostles, you would think that a woman should not be able to get a divorce. And then here Peter, uh, or excuse me, and here Justin says, uh, gave uh, him what you call a bill of divorce and was separated from him. Yeah, well, I mean, he just says that she gets a bill of divorce and doesn't really condemn her for it. Um, I was just, I mean, and he doesn't reference either the Peter or the Paul passage, to be clear. It just seems interesting that he's sort of willing to give her a, I don't know, a, an approval of this, which there was an injunction against. Yeah, well, one thing I would say, though, kind of, you know, I, and I don't know how much you intended to convey this and what you just said, but you almost kind of made it sound like the apostles were putting this onus on a woman to not be allowed to get a divorce. But Paul seems to, in 1 Corinthians 7, make it clear that whatever standard is held here to the man, it applies to the woman as well. So in verse 12, he says, if a man is married to an unbeliever, he's not to depart from her. And then he says, and if a woman is married to an unbeliever, and he's willing to stay with her, he should not depart from her, which makes it sound like he's not making a distinction between uh, women and men in that sense. He's just saying... Same principle, both sides. In uh, Jewish society, was a woman even allowed to leave her husband? Well, or was was divorce only one way? It just depends on what time you're talking about. At this particular point, Roman law is law. So the Jews don't have a law that binds. So Roman law is that a woman could divorce her her husband for sure. It is a custom in contemporary Orthodox circles that a woman cannot leave her husband. He is the only one that can divorce yeah, okay. for sure, for sure. I don't want to say that that's not a long-standing tradition in Jewish history, for sure. So I didn't want to deny that. And probably in second-century Judaism, uh, the culture was so strong that a woman wouldn't feel that. But legally, if we're just talking legally, law, because yeah. because the Jews in Rome they did not have an independent law that governed things at, in the second century. They s- sort of did in the early first century prior to. Um, Titus's taking or destruction of the temple. They had a law that kind of ran side by side with the Roman law. The Roman law trumped their law, but they kind of let them do their thing. But now there is no Jewish law that is binding anywhere. So Roman law would, but yeah, but a woman would probably still feel uh, compelled in a sense to stay married. Because I thought that that was interesting in and of itself that she was the one who, wrote the bill of divorce i was like and i mean i should add we're we're making a sort of digression the thrust of uh, and and it's my fault i let us down it the thrust of the passage is to demonstrate the persecution that christians were undergoing because not yeah. only does uh, urbicus uh want to punish her but also this guy lucius who kind of stands up for her and he just sort of irrationally says you call yourself a christian you should be punished too yeah. Well, and at the end of the day, and, we, you know, it's kind of a little funny. You know, last week, Chad, you introduced it uh, as we had um, Caleb on the show. And you mentioned that we were reading the Apology. And one of the reasons we had Caleb on is because Caleb was of a different worldview, kind of a different mindset. And so we wanted to kind of test out how does the Apology, and the Apology means a defense, work on maybe a skeptic from our era. But the reality is, is Justin isn't writing an apology in the sense that a 21st century American Christian would write an apology. Yeah. A 21st century American Christian who writes an apology or a, again, a defense of the faith, he is trying to intellectually defend why we believe what we believe. Yeah. And I don't want to say Justin isn't doing that to a certain degree, but mostly Justin is writing a letter to Romans just saying, look, the accusations you're bringing against us aren't true. 
We don't eat. Uh, we don't kill. Uh, kill and eat babies, and we do not uh, engage in these wild, licentious, uh, you know, sex feasts. Yeah. Um, that's mostly what he's saying. He's just saying, look, you guys are killing us, and you are you are committing all the crimes that you're accusing us of committing. And ironically, we're not committing any of these crimes. So really, his uh, his apology is less an intellectual defense, and it's more a defense against the practice of the Romans, trying to say you're violating your own customs and your own laws and your own conscious uh, conscience. Which which and this kind of ties to the first apology as well when he talks about how you kill us literally because of our name, just it's yeah. because we're Christians and, and nothing beyond that. Yeah. Which, which I thought was actually like a fine point of like, you know, pedantics that he like, but it, it was really cool how he just literally narrows it down to literally just the name. That's yeah. all that yeah. we're being killed for. Um, because all your accusations are false and that's exactly what's going on in this, I guess, second chapter here where the husband got this uh, uh, centurion to do all this torture and capture of these guys. just mm-hmm. And literally, it's just if they say they're Christian. And so, yeah, it's, it's not an apology like we have today where it's we've got really brilliant intellectuals uh, diving into all sorts of interesting problems. It's a... Uh, it's totally like a, hey, socially, we should be accepted socially. Yeah. You know, like this is bull crap. Yeah. I was going to say the burden of proof is different uh, in a contemporary apologetic versus what Justin, all Justin Martyr is trying to argue is a very limited thing. And I mean, you might even think of it as he is addressing the Senate and the emperor as sort of like in a court of law. He just wants to say, you just don't even have reason to actually kill us. That's all I want. I'm not saying yeah. that, I, you know, you should agree that I'm right, that this is the smartest world view. I think that he does say that, but primarily it's just, yeah, like stop killing us in a kind of court of law defense. We don't deserve to be killed as, you know, as we talked about for the sake of our name. So let's let, you know, yeah. Burden of proof is just not as strong. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to kind of, Deflect slightly, or I don't know, deflect, move on to something. Uh, Justin Martyr does this both in the first and second. He uses really strong language about an eternal hell. Mm-hmm. And he does kind of use that as a threat, so to speak, for these. That is one component of this apology where he's trying to defend. He's basically saying, okay, you guys uh, wield the power and you can kill us, but... Let me tell you a couple things. Number one, why we're not afraid of dying. Because when we die, we get to go to heaven, and it's going to be awesome. And what's more is you guys should all be scared because you're torturing us now, which is for a minute, but someday you're going to go to eternal fire, which is going to be really bad, right? So he he does that. But then there's some real – it's a little confusing because I'll, I'll just read two passages. So one, he asserts an eternal hell, and that's in chapter nine. He says, that no one may say what is said by those who are deemed philosophers, that our assertions that the wicked are punished in eternal fire are big words and bugbears, and that we wish men to live virtuously through fear, and not because such a life is good and pleasant. I will briefly reply to this, that if this be not so, meaning if it is not the case that there is an eternal hellfire, God does not exist. (laughs) Or if he exists, he cares not for men and neither virtue nor vice or anything. Right. So 
he doesn't really flush out his logic, but I assume what he's saying is, is that if God doesn't punish people righteously, then he then he's not God or I, not virtuous. Actually, since you just jumped to nine, I want to say something that I thought was cool about nine and okay. that ties to what you're saying. Okay. It's, I think this is his, because of the, like the bottom half of it, it's his uh, defense of essentially what philosophers of religion are still doing today, which is objective morality. Well, actually, and, let's not go there yet. I okay. want to get to that, but I want to finish this comment about hell okay. that I was going to make. But yeah, you're right. That's a really important chapter. So I want to take you back really quickly because first he asserts this thing about eternal hell, and then he goes back to chapter, or if I go back in chapter 7, he seems to contradict himself, and he says at the beginning of chapter 7, Wherefore, God delays causing the confusion and destruction of the whole world by which the wicked angels and demons and men shall cease to exist. Right? So I get confused because there he seems to be endorsing annihilationism, uh, the idea that a creature will cease to exist after judgment, whereas in chapter 9 he seems to imply an eternal judgment. Uh, so I'm very, you know, and, and I've seen a couple of things like this in Justin where is he endorsing eternal fire? Like, I mean, is he endorsing an eternal judgment of hell? Or is he saying that the wicked, the unrighteous will be uh, judged to destruction? So I find that kind of an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. I do want to get onto your point, Trevor, because that was actually a big one that I highlighted. Oh, uh, okay. Do we want to move on to um, the objective? Well, I... Okay. So maybe let me, I'll say this. I mean, something about the sort of theological world and worldview that comes with hell. The other thing that I wanted to add on to maybe that whole, um, I'm not even sure what the right word is, sort of cosmology or um, how Christians view the world. Uh, there is an afterlife, a heaven, a hell, where those places are, if they're literal, if they're physical, if they're spiritual. All of this is up for sort of debate. But he does seem to argue very clearly for a physical punishment in the end. Um, and you can add into this worldview uh, the whole issue of demons and angels, which Justin relies heavily on. I just thought I would open that up. Uh, you know, the reason is, I mean, we talked about it for a moment with Caleb. And, you know, as 21st century readers uh, in America specifically, um, in the United States or maybe even in Europe, we find this to just be sort of the silly beliefs of an uneducated past. No one who has any intelligence believes that there's anything beyond the physical world. And so Justin is making a very clear picture of hell, heaven, things that are beyond the eye, demons, angels. And all these demons and angels play a fairly large role in human history um, where, you know, we might just want to, you know, and, and actually famously some modern theologians have just tried to excise that just to cut it straight out uh, of Christian history like we should be ashamed of it. Yeah, I mean, th that definitely, that is certainly kind of a trend, uh, especially amongst modern uh, scholastics, both in the church and out of the church. Uh, I, I myself obviously think it's wrongheaded, and I mean, it's just incorrect. I mean, um, that is one thing that I, I would say I don't think is ever challenged in church history until the modern era. Uh, as far as I know, there are no, I mean, you find a lot of debates that rage today going all the way back to the first couple of centuries, tons of them, or most of them. But this modern attempt to try to, as you said, excise the demons and the angels from our theology, by that, you know, I mean, get rid of it from our story. Yeah. Uh, that is a modern phenomenon. The ancients, it just didn't even occur to them. Or the medievals, they, or 
I mean, really, the modern theologians prior to the 1800s, I mean, nobody even contemplated it. It's such a, such a key part of, um, of the tradition. Uh, it's clearly taught in scripture. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... No, I mean, even to this day, like, I've been on Reddit before, mm. uh, which is like a social discussion website, for those who don't know. And when I'm on, like, the Christian forum part, sometimes someone will talk about an experience, and uh, people can, like, label what denomination they're from. So some people are even labeled atheists. And if anyone ever talks about having, like, a dark feeling or something where they, they think at all maybe demons could be involved uh, and talk about it openly. Yeah, everyone jumps. Even a lot of Christians will jump down their throat saying, it's just mental illness. You need to go to the doctor. Yeah. It's Which I'm not even saying they're wrong. Maybe some of these instances are, are that. Um, and perhaps some ancient world uh, demon phenomena totally can be explained by mental illness. But it's still... It, I do find it strange that it's that people are so quick when they they're okay to make a metaphysical jump to there being something like God existing, mm -hmm. whereas uh, it's unfathomable then to postulate demons as a cause at all in some of these instances where they traditionally were a cause yeah. of some things. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I if find... you can believe that there's a God, yeah, there's no reason why you can't believe that there are other spiritual beings right. of like. I mean, that are not physical, right? I mean, yeah, it doesn't make any sense why that jump wouldn't be made. I feel like we can get into some epistemology right here. but yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> actually, I would like to make a comment. I listened to a Radiolab episode a while back. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Radiolab's a, an amazing podcast that you all should listen to. Um, and I can't remember which episode it was, what it's called. I'll, I'll try to find that for you guys later. But Radiolab is a science podcast. It's a podcast done by a couple of guys who are trying to basically popularize science for, um, you know, kind of for the masses, so to speak. And there's an episode where one of the, one, you know, this guy they know, this guy who is, um, uh, I don't know if he's an atheist or agnostic, or whatever, but he's deeply scientific and he does not believe in demons or angels or ghosts or any kind of spiritual being, whatever. Uh, this story to make, I, I'm trying to think how to abbreviate it, but basically, long story short, he lived in a house that was owned by his parents after they died, and his girlfriend was kind of into spiritism, and she wanted to bring in these, like, ghost hunters um, who would come in and try to talk to the ghosts that she thought were in the house. Yeah. And so they have this little mechanism where they they basically say they can communicate to these ghosts by taking these flashlights and... Uh, uncorking the top of the flashlight um, a little bit. And then if they ask the ghost a question, the ghost can tap it. Like they have enough, they're able to exert enough physical force to push the, 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 the cap to the flashlight on and it'll cause it to light up, right? Okay. And so the idea is they ask the ghost a question, two, two taps, it says yes, one tap, no, something like that. All right. And he, you know, so he sits down. This guy is a total skeptic, doesn't believe in any of this. And he starts asking questions that only he says only his parents would know. Um, and they answer rightly. And he says, well, you guys are doing something. So they allow him to take the recorder and go into a bedroom. And in the bedroom, he recounts, he basically goes through the process. He, in theory, has a conversation with his dad. The, there's constant, I mean, the tapping is always accurate. Um, and he kind of breaks down and cries. And afterwards... There, he's being interviewed by the two hosts, and they're like, "Well, so what happened? Are you telling us there was actually a ghost in there or something?" 
And he goes, I don't know. He's like, I don't believe in that stuff. So I would say no. He goes, but at the same time, it's something I can't explain. And they brought on a scientist to explain it. And the scientist said, well, what you have here is a classic case of confirmation bias. He says, if you slightly uncap the lid of a, of a um, flashlight, then it's going to sometimes connect and light up. And he says, it just so happened to accidentally light up when you ask these questions, you were looking for the answer. Confirmation bias, there's nothing, nothing coming here. But let me pause here and say why I'm sharing this. I'm sharing this because number one, I don't have any reason to believe in anything in that story. I'm not compelled. Yeah. I'm not compelled by ghost stories. I don't believe ghosts are what people think they are typically. I mean, I definitely far more believe in angels and demons than I do ghosts or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> and at the same time, I was listening to the story, and, and I believe him. that This guy's a scientist. He's not – he does not – even at the end, he said, yeah, I don't believe what I experienced. It's just this weird experience. But what I thought was crazy is this scientist goes, well, it's just confirmation bias. And I say, no. No, sometimes the probabilities are too, too extreme. Yeah. The, the, yes, granted, the lid of a flashlight will tap and light up. Gotcha. But would it, what is the likelihood it would light up in exactly the right way, in exactly the right time, every time? I find that to be really a small likelihood, a small probability. So, what, you know, I, I would be way more willing to accept that, that these ghost hunters orchestrated something or, you know what I mean? Yeah, like they, yeah, they did yeah. some trick that made it work than to try to say confirmation bias. All this to say is we live in a world where weird things happen and where, uh, where almost everybody believes in some kind of, I mean, I don't want to say almost everybody, a huge percentage of the people believe and attest to certain kinds of spiritual phenomena in their life. I, I just have a hard time believing or thinking that, it, that it's insane to not believe in some kind of spiritual phenomenon. Anyway, that's it. Sorry, long, long story to make a small point. Well, we can move on from the spiritual world. I, I, you know, I'd be remiss not to throw in, you know, I, I take, I've read C.S. Lewis since I was young. Um, C.S. Lewis was my introduction to sort of deeper thinking uh, Christianity. I don't think he's right on all things, but I will say, I always thought it was helpful what he says. I think it's in the beginning of the screw tape letters, something like, um, you know, there's sort of two extremes that you can go to with the spiritual world. You can think that there's a demon behind every rock or behind every tree, or you can think that it doesn't exist at all. And sort of, you know, the difficulty is steering this middle course where, you know, it's not that it doesn't exist, but it's just not everywhere and the cause of everything. And the really difficult task of being a thinking Christian is knowing, you know, when to say, well, <laughs> um, I think there's an explanation beyond the scientific, beyond the, uh, just the rat, oh, you know, strictly rational. Um, and so, you know, with left with little else to explain, I, I might think that there are uh, demons or there is uh, something more to this world uh, than, than physically meets the eye. C.S. Lewis doesn't expand it that far, but, um, but I mean, I take his sort of overall, you know, sort of steering the middle course on that uh, to be a, a helpful corrective. Thanks for listening this week to A History of Christian Theology as we discuss the fir in our first of two episodes on Justin's Second Apology. After this week, we will do the second edition of the Second Apology, and then we will move on to Justin's dialogue with Trypho before finally discussing Irenaeus' Against Heresies. After that, we will look at the Apostles' Creed and then move into the 3rd century A.D. Thanks for listening. Have a good week.